COVID-19, the nature of truth, knowledge, wisdom, trust, obedience, and acceptance. Initially, this talk was planned to be a talk uh, of philosophy for healthcare workers to sort of help them deal with certain issues that are difficult uh, regarding the pandemic. But as I explore these topics further, this became a wider uh, philosophical talk, including some political philosophy. When I speak of political philosophy, I'm not talking about politics, but the idea of how to govern. And so the smaller talk has morphed into something else. Hopefully it's still helpful for the healthcare workers, but the ideas others may gather different ideas from this talk. So what is the nature of truth? This is a very interesting topic since right now there is this idea of misinformation. So what is the ultimate nature of truth? And do we have truth? And how is it, how far are we away from truth? And so Socrates had this idea of the levels of truth and how close we were to it. Um, so there's the ultimate truth they're sort of, um, the next level is sort of the kind of perception of truth. And the third would be kind of the description of truth. Um, he liked to use the, he used the analogy of the chair. So there's the sort of the ultimate form of a chair or furniture. And that was kind of the ultimate, the similar akin to the ultimate truth. The next level was the maker of the chair. Um, this person created the uh, a chair, the model of the chair, and this was as close as you could possibly get to the ultimate truth, but ultimately there were flaws and kind of variations within as best as the maker could try to make it. The third level, he came up with a riddle and he said, what if I told you that you could create anything in the world that you wanted? You could create the sun, you could create the stars, you could create me, you could create yourself, you could create anything you imagined. And the person says, how could I possibly do that? And Socrates, it's easy, said it's easy. Basically, you paint or you write. And the idea is the painter is the third level of truth. He depicts something the maker has made and describes a certain aspect of it. But the idea is it is one-sided or it is sort of one-sided in the sense that it cannot be a 360 degree description. Meaning when you paint something, you can only paint a certain side of something. And so the ultimate truth has everything. The maker of the truth has a piece of furniture, uh, which is 360 degrees, and it can be seen from every sort of angle. And the painter can only paint one aspect of the chair. If he is a good painter, he paints a very accurate aspect. Uh, but since the painter is different from the maker, he is not necessarily as skilled and knowledgeable in carpentry, and so some of these things will be off. Socrates used this analogy of the truth to sort of help people understand the nature of poetry. So the idea, he said, was the poet, when he described all these different things and aspects of life and virtues and warfare and all that kind of thing, it wasn't because the poet was an expert in it. The poet was just someone who was similar to a painter. He could only describe certain things of it. 
And so the idea in when he was talking about Homer and the Odyssey and the Iliad uh, was that even though he talks about generalship, that does not mean Homer was a skilled general. Because he talks about love, it does not mean he kind of knew these things personally. Because he talked about truth and uh, education and all these kind of things, it doesn't mean he was necessarily knowledgeable. He was merely a painter, meaning he could give descriptions, uh, but they weren't necessarily accurate. And so he said you should not rely on him because essentially the painter is a third from the truth. You have the ultimate truth, you have the maker, and then you have the descriptor, and the descriptor is a third from the truth. If you were to apply this to COVID-19, you'd say that there is the ultimate truth of COVID-19, sort of the ultimate truth that perhaps only God or someone above knows. You have the maker who is of true maker of the picture of the truth, which is sort of like the multiple different researchers. So you took all the different human researchers who were working on COVID-19 and that body of knowledge, you would call them the maker of the truth. And then you have someone who takes an article of what the maker has created and paints it or he writes it and basically a newsletter or a newspaper or, or or someone who has read you know some sort of journal a medical journal and this describes one aspect uh, of what the maker has found and created and so this is a third from the truth uh, so the idea is what we receive even as medical professionals, might be considered a third from the truth. And then you have someone who, um, you know, some news talk person or some sort of talk show person or Joe Rogan, and he reads a newspaper description of that. And he's technically, you know, for, uh, what he's read is a fourth of the truth, a fourth from the truth. And someone listens to Joe Rogan and they get something that is a fifth from the truth. And so the idea is, who has the ultimate truth? And is it surprising to you that someone who received something that was six degrees away from the truth, is it surprising to you that it's not accurate? It is it surprising to you that they cannot tell the difference? There's an idea of what is the difference uh, between opinion and knowledge? And so, in general, I would say most everyone holds opinion. Very few people hold knowledge, uh, meaning to be knowledge is to be a second degree from the truth. You actually have seen and encountered the ultimate truth. And so you are, what you have is knowledge. Everyone else is basically holding opinion. Socrates did say something about right opinion and wrong opinion. And the idea was that if you held right opinion in all intents and purposes, it was as useful as holding right knowledge. So the image he gave was that right knowledge, right opinion was a beautiful image seen before your eyes, but it had the habit of floating away. And he said, right knowledge was that beautiful image, but it was pinned to the ground and could not float away. 
but for all intents and purposes, if you had right opinion, if your opinion was correct, it was as useful as if you had right knowledge. An example I like to give to help understand this sort of concept is, uh, is to examine the ideas of what we hold about the Earth being round versus several hundred years ago when they thought the Earth was flat. Meaning you and I, we went to school and they told us that the Earth was round. Several hundred years ago when they went to school or if they had some sort of tutor or something, whatever was going on back then, someone told them that the Earth was flat. You and I, in reality, it is opinion that we have that the Earth is round. We don't actually know that. And when I say we don't actually know that, it is that we do not personally know that. Neither you nor I have blasted off into space and done a rotation around the world and have personally observed the Earth to be round. Neither you nor I have done astronomical uh, uh, astronomy calculations, looking at the rotations of the world and, and planetary alignment, and have came to the ultimate deduction that the Earth was round. We just hold right opinion because someone else blasted off into space and kind of established that for us. But to understand that what we hold is opinion, not necessarily knowledge. Knowledge comes from being at the second degree of truth, to have experienced it and seen it. There's an interesting dialogue in Plato where Socrates basically sort of duels with a rhetorician. And the rhetorician, I believe it might be Gorgias, the, um, the Platonic dialogue, uh, but he talks about his ability. And he talks about, I can, I can do anything and everything. Meaning, I, my skill with words is such that I can discourse about anything. I can discourse about poetry. I can discourse about warfare. I can discourse about medicine or archery or, or, or stories or drinking or, or anything. My knowledge and ability to speak is such that I can do anything as good as anybody. And that is why students come and seek me out, because I give them this capability of being able to do anything. And this rhetorician gave the example of having a brother as a doctor. So he said that sometimes um, he would go around with his brother, who was a doctor, as his brother went and treated patients. And sometimes his brother would encounter a patient and prescribe him medicine and try and say, this is good for you, you should take it. But the patient wouldn't take his medicine. And he said, him as a rhetorician, he would then step in and he would start speaking. And his skill with speech was so good that he persuaded the patient to take the medicine. Meaning he outperformed a real doctor at persuading a patient to take the medicine. And, and he took this as proof that he could be a better doctor than even the doctor himself, because simply he was very good at speech. The dialogue is very interesting, but in the end, Socrates sort of tears him apart by saying that uh, he makes the one conclusion, which is that he asks him, could you fool a wise person? Meaning, does your knowledge of medicine fool a doctor 
or can it only be used to fool a patient? And he concludes that no, he cannot fool wise people. His ability to speak has the ability to sway the masses, but a wise person will not be convinced. Meaning a rhetorician can persuade people of all sorts of certain things. And he made the example of he could persuade uh, a council to follow his tact for warfare better than the general. But he could not fool the general as to what was a wise course of action and what was not. And ultimately, Socrates sort of gave him a backhanded insult that there was nothing grandiose in what he was doing because basically all he was doing was uh, fooling people. And it, he, he called it either cookery or attiring. Cookery is sort of like spicing up a dish and, and uh, trying to please people with different uh, tastes and smells. And attiring was essentially just dressing something up meaning uh, uh, you put fancy clothes on it and, and painted the face and you know did all sorts of outer changes. And so he basically said, what your, rhetoric, what your rhetorician skills amount to is basically cookering, cookery and a tiring. And the idea is that is what has happened in today's society, in today's society where basically people who have the skill of rhetoricians have better skill at convincing people than actual doctors and nurses. And so the idea is you should, if you wish to undo this, you really have to find rhetoricians and probably the profession which is capable of that are actually lawyers, people who have a skill with words capable of persuading others. So perhaps instead of sending Dr. Fauci out in public in front of a TV camera and telling him to warn people, we should hire some lawyer who is, or some sort of used car salesman, or some sort of charming, charming person who has a strong skill with words, who can persuade the masses, someone who has a skill with words better than the doctors themselves. Next we come to knowledge and wisdom. So Socrates said that wisdom is knowing what we don't know. Uh, so if you knew that you didn't know, you were wise in the sense that you will always keep looking for what might be the real answer. The worst ignorance was thinking that you knew uh, because if you thought you knew, you didn't bother to look any further. And so many people who've read about the pandemic or read about or spent five minutes or 10 minutes reading the news basically feel they know and those who stop questioning basically have become ignorant. And the idea is that people who come to you with a certain knowledge, and they're so confident about their knowledge, and yet some of these are the most ignorant people because they don't know that they don't know. One who is wise is at least a little bit more circumspect about what he holds as knowledge. And so what cripples them is not so much um, the information that they possess. What cripples them is their attachment to what they possess. Something that kind of uh, um, came out in the research was this idea of cognitive dissonance. And the idea was this sort of came on uh, a psychological term that came in dealing with people who were in cults 
or people who kind of follow conspiracy theories. And the idea is they were so attached to what they thought they knew that you could never convince them of anything else. So they talked about cult members who thought the world was going to end, and the world didn't come to an end, but they just came up with a different explanation for what kind of happened. Meaning the more kind of facts that you threw at them, the more they resisted and came up with an alternate kind of reality. Uh, so this idea of cognitive distance, that the more that, they, that whoever is kind of stuck on their truth basically cannot be convinced of anything else. And the more you try to convince them, the more they think you have some sort of malign intent and they cannot therefore receive what you say. I was going to speak next about dying and sort of how it's kind of impacted everyone. And the idea is healthcare workers have been uh, um, traumatized by the numbers of people dying and the sort of feeling of helplessness at seeing all those people die. One of the things you had to wonder was, why is it traumatizing for them? And what is the thing that should change so that the process can happen without them being traumatized? And it's basically a sense of expectation. So the idea is, there are people who work in hospice where everyone who is coming to them is essentially dying. And they don't try to fight the dying, they try to keep them comfortable and they basically um, die. Um, but the idea is that people who work in hospice often have a very great sense of purpose in what they have done uh, because nothing went, uh, everything went as they expected it to kind of go. People who don't work in hospice on the other side of medicine where you're trying to save lives, they have the expectation of saving lives. And so all these people who come to them and die it traumatizes them, not because they were dying, but because they had the expectation that they wanted these people to live. How else would you account for someone who works in hospice for you know many, many years might see tens of thousands of people die and yet find his work very, very fulfilling, but that someone who works in a regular place and sees you know a thousand people die. Uh, is utterly traumatized the rest of his life, seeing all these people die. Part of this is the kind of a sort of false view of death, and like I said in my talk on anxiety, about the fallacy of supreme human agency, meaning personally intervening and determining someone else's fate uh, when it may not be possible. And the other was that um, having the belief that you are saving lives when in fact, everyone dies at some point in their life. And the last thing about the idea of that they were dying without purpose, that they were all unnecessarily dying. I read this article in The Economist uh, uh, the other day where it talked about vac vaccination rates in East Asia. So in East Asia, they initially did quite well. Uh, and then after the Delta variant hit, kind of these nations were the kind of clobbered, all these kind of countries in Southeast Asia. But this last article kind of said that there was an extremely high vaccination rate in all these Southeast Asian countries and East Asian countries. And they said, they cited that one of the reasons why the vaccination rates were so high were because they looked at the news and they saw these people in America dying. 
the richest, most developed country in the world, um, kind of the superpower of the world. All these citizens were dying uh, who were unvaccinated. And so that galvanized the people. And these people got their vaccines over there uh, because of these people dying. And so if you only looked at sort of your own personal picture of things, you would say all these people died without a reason. If you pulled back your view and looked at a worldview, you could see that these people dying actually influenced events on the other side of the planet. And in that sense, they did not die without a purpose. Their death may have helped someone somewhere else. The last mention I will make about vaccinating and death. And so the idea is we tell people that vaccinating will keep them alive, um, but it's an opinion that we hold and not necessarily knowledge. The reason I say that it's not knowledge is, is because that we do not actually know what they were going to die from. Meaning this man who gets a vaccine or doesn't get a vaccine, he may die of a heart attack, a stroke, colon cancer, he may be shot, he may be stabbed, or anything might happen. Um, or he may die of COVID-19. And the idea is we really don't know. Uh, I would try to sort of look at it the way you look at cigarette smoking, where we tell everyone to quit smoking so they don't get lung cancer, heart attack, or stroke. But we don't know necessarily that they will actually get lung cancer, heart attack, or stroke. It just increases their probability grateful. And there will always be people who defy you and live to the age of 90 after smoking three packs a day. Um, and the idea is that's why you have to kind of be careful about how strongly you recommend it. Uh, because everyone always cites that example of, oh, well, my grandfather lived 104 and he smoked 60 packs a day. Um, <laughs> but the purpose is really knowing that we don't know. That, yes, it is probably better that they quit smoking or that they take their vaccine. Uh, but we don't know for sure that they will die if they don't follow advice. And if you learn to view it closer to cigarette smoking and all the other advice that we kind of give and gets ignored, it will not bother you as much. Meaning on a daily basis, you give people advice to eat healthy, to exercise, to get their colonoscopy, to get their mammogram, to get the other vaccines, uh, to get the flu shot. Um, but when they all disregard your advice or don't follow it or only follow parts of it they kind of agree with, do you get shockingly angry or upset or mad? The idea is no, you don't, uh, because uh, you see this, this happens on such a regular and routine basis that if you got mad, it would absolutely drive you insane. Once you understand that, it will bother you less when people ignore your advice to take the vaccine. Next, we will talk about trust. This is sort of an epiphany I had uh, when I was kind of uh, thinking about this. Um, there was an interesting article in JAMA a few months, or a few, maybe even a few weeks ago, where it was an HIV doctor who talked about her work treating HIV patients during the uh, HIV pandemic. And she gave a story of one patient in particular, a patient who kind of spent lots and lots of time with her Every single visit, basically, she would encourage him to take his HIV medicines, and every single visit, he would refuse. And there was a kind of a relationship that developed between them, 
where you know they had you know good kind of rapport, but this patient would never sort of take the medicine. He just didn't believe in it. And so she talks about uh, over and over again as he's getting worse and worse. Months and months are passing, and he just keeps doing worse and worse. And he's you know approaching death, and still he won't kind of take the medicine. And one day she noticed him in the hospital ward. And he is kind of making friends with the patient next to him. And, uh, um, you know, within an hour or a few hours or a few days, suddenly this patient says, I'll take the medicine. And he started taking the medicine on his deathbed as he died of HIV. And the doctor was kind of saying, she is not sure what this other patient told him. Uh, um, but somehow this patient managed to convince him to take his medicine. And she, in her, all her expertise, citing all the statistics, citing all the information, side effects, this, this, and this, and this, could not persuade him to take it. But somehow this other man, who was just lying in his room uh, as a neighbor, was able to convince him. And the question was why? And it was kind of, we couldn't understand why this patient took his medicine uh, when this guy said it, but not when the doctor said it. And basically, an epiphany came to me, and this was the nature of trust. So during the uh, um, the Syria kind of thing with the chemical weapons, um, it was Barack Obama or John Kerry, they said, trust but verify. And they were talking about disposing of the chemical weapons. When I actually looked this up on Google, it's actually a Russian proverb, uh, um, and it was used with Ronald Reagan when they were talking about nuclear disarmaments uh, with, I think, Gorbachev. Uh, but it was a Russian proverb that said, trust but verify. But if you actually understand the nature of trust, you would understand that this is actually uh, not a correct statement. The nature of trust is that you don't need to verify. What I mean by that is, if you trust someone and they tell you something, you actually don't verify what they say. You don't need to verify it at all. And the reason you don't need to verify it is because you trust them. That's the whole idea of trust. You don't need to verify. I'll give you an example. Let's say you were in a building and your best friend came to you. And she said, the building's on fire. We got to get out of here right now. You would go with your friend and get out of the building. Meaning you wouldn't go and look and see if there was smoke. You wouldn't go listen to see if a fire thing was pulled. You wouldn't try to do any sort of investigation at all. You would trust your friend without any sort of verification. And you would follow what they say. You didn't need any sort of explanation. You didn't need statistics. You didn't need anything, any sort of information at all. This is the nature of trust. If I gave you a different example where you were in a building and a man in a clown suit came up to you and said, the building's on fire, you need to escape and get out right now. You would be a little bit less inclined to believe the man in the clown suit. And you might look around and say, is there anyone else running? Is there any smoke? Is there any sign of fire? Before you decide to believe him. And if your mother told you when you were younger, don't trust people in clown suits or don't trust people dressed as clowns. When this man came and told you the building was a fire, 
you would actually probably even ignore him. You would say, get out of my face. I'm not believing you. You are a clown. And this is the nature of trust. And so in the pandemic, the doctors and nurses have become the ones who are wearing clown suits. And people, a certain aspect of the population, no longer trust them. People, on the other hand, that they do trust, they believe them without any sort of verification. And this is the nature of trust. The idea, the idea is not that all these people are incorrigible or uncorrectable. I had someone tell me that uh, she was living in Arkansas at the time of the pandemic, and all these people were, you know, kind of pro-Trump and conservative. Uh, but she said that all these people all stayed at home in the beginning, they all kind of obeyed, and they watched the newscasts of Governor Cuomo, and they all hung on every single word he said. And they had such great trust and respect for this man who was leading, the, leading them out of the pandemic. Now, to, you know, a year and a half later, they feel differently. But the idea is they were capable of it because at the time they trusted. And at the beginning of the pandemic, during the first few days, there was probably full compliance by almost everyone in the nation. Everyone stayed home. And there was a sort of urging of obedience by people from every political background. Everyone has to do their part. And the idea is there was a strong amount of trust at that time at what was going on and in the authorities, in the medical figures, everything. Everyone was trusting. Now the situation has changed. And so as I came to think about trust more, I actually had an epiphany today about um, what Confucius said. There's a dialogue in Confucius in his, I believe it's in either Analects or the Doctrine of the Mean, where someone asked Confucius, what are the three things necessary to rule? And he said, uh, food, the army, and trust of the people. And so someone asked Confucius, if you had to lose one, which one would you lose and still kind of survive? And immediately he said, uh, the military. You can lose the military and still survive. And then he was asked next, if you had to lose one more, which could you lose and still survive? And he said, food. Because if you have the trust of the people, you can survive famine and drought, and you will still make it through. If you do not have the trust of the people, even if you have food, you might be overthrown. And so the idea was, in the ruling by virtue, trust of the people was most essential. So one of the things that Confucius said for a ruler to do was to be virtuous and then make your virtue known to everyone. If your virtue was known to everyone, then trust would come. And when trust was there, anything was possible. I felt I saw an example of this in the movie Judas and the Black Messiah. So in that movie, uh, the character of Fred Hampton, he's a Black Panther uh, kind of fighting against the police, but he builds the Rainbow Coalition. He approaches you know, the Latin gangs in Chicago. He approaches poor white people who kind of don't like the police either and have been victims of brutality. He approaches you know, all the different other categories, the other black gangs, and he tries to sort of build a coalition of people 
trying to improve the city. And he has these kind of after-school meal programs. He provides, his organization provides childcare. He does all sorts of things for the benefit of people. And during the conflict with police, basically the police, uh, um, you know, they're enemies of the Black Panthers because they're kind of fighting and killing each other. But they decide one day they're, they burn down the Black Panthers' headquarters. And so what happened next, I thought was kind of interesting. So he's standing there in the ruins of his headquarters where it was just burned down and everything was lost. All these months and years of kind of building a place up, his whole institution, it was burnt right to the ground. And what happened was that people started to walk in and they said, we'd like to help. And all these people that he kind of helped earlier, they were now repaying it. And so people gathered there and they started to clean things up and started to nail things up and, and kind of putting wood boards back. And, and basically within a very short period of time, when all these people came together and helped him, he basically, uh, uh, this building was restored in a very, very quick fashion. And this really spoke to the power of the people. Meaning people, we kind of ignore the idea of people as being a resource. But if you harness, if you have that power of the people, because you have trust, uh, essentially you have a resource which it is difficult to sort of find anything to compete with it. And Confucius mentioned this too. So he talked about when there was a sage king who was in charge and basically he had virtue. He said that sometimes the people executed his will without him even asking them to do it. Meaning they found out that the king wanted something built for a certain purpose and they started building it without the king even telling them. And the idea is when they have, the tr when they trust the king, they will follow and do his will uh, even without having to be asked to do it. And so you look at kind of Mao and what he said about guerrilla warfare, Mao Zedong, and the idea is that you can swim among the people and you will have help with everything. They will hide you, they will provide you with goods and food, and, and they will help you survive, they will transport you, everything. Uh, uh, if you had the people on your side, you swam amongst them as like a fish in the sea. This leads me next to the idea of obedience. And so the idea is obedience requires an amount of respect and trust. If you don't have trust, people won't obey. And we talked about this in the last talk about justice, about sort of a legalist versus ruling by legalist means or ruling by virtue, meaning ruling by law or ruling by virtue. And so if you rule by law, you have punishments and you have threats and you have rewards. And so when law is present, people will follow. Uh, when law goes missing, though, people will sometimes do whatever they want. To rule by virtue is to rule with trust. And so you don't require law, people will do the right thing. There is a uh, Confucius proverb when something like, uh, when the people on top are upright, the people down below, even if they're not ordered, they will follow and do the right thing. If the people on top are not upright, then the people down below, even if you order them, they sometimes will still disobey. And so the idea is the person on top has to be virtuous. 
they have to have trust and they have to have your respect in order for things to go swimmingly. Um, otherwise, you are trying to rule by law. Meaning, when you rule by law and law is present, people will follow and obey if the punishments are there to enforce it. Um, if there are not punishments there to enforce it, people won't obey. And if you understand this, you understand that lockdowns do not work uh, without the consent of the people. Meaning there was one point in the pandemic where California had a lockdown and basically cases kept going up. They had all sorts of business restrictions and things like that, the harshest in the country. And their cases kept going up and up and up. And the idea is lockdowns don't work. One is that they weren't quite enforcing it, meaning their punishments weren't harsh enough. But the second and the most major reason behind it is you did not have the compliance of the people, meaning you did not have the trust of the people. Um, if you had the trust, you wouldn't need punishments and rewards. They would just follow, as they did in the beginning of the pandemic. Which is why, in general, lockdowns, if not enforced, won't be successful. Because if pe they said that basically, instead of eating at restaurants where we were shut down, people just went and had their gatherings in private homes. They just moved it somewhere else. You did not have the ability to stop them from doing that. And so these things happened and basically COVID kind of exploded regardless. And this here is the idea that without maximum use of force and law, lockdowns are not going to be effective. Um, you don't require that massive use of law and force and punishment and reward if you have trust of the people. And so there was a person I met who said, uh, when asked about the vaccine, he said his reply was, it kind of stunned me at the time, but he talked about the mismanagement of the border. He said, they're letting all these people in with COVID at the border, they're not giving the vaccines and they're flooding the country with it. And uh, why should I have my personal freedom impinged upon if they're not doing the right thing at the border? Why should I be forced to get a shot if uh, the border is being mismanaged in this way? And I thought to myself, these are, these are separate topics. These are totally different issues. Um, it would be unwise to link your personal health choices to the political actions of the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, but when you, when I kind of thought about it more, the idea was that you cannot get someone angry to obey. Um, you cannot, uh, someone who is angry and does not respect you, they will not obey uh, out of principle and out of ego. Your ego prevents you from obeying. And so some, the, the example I like to give of this, uh, uh, which is actually quite humorous, is the idea that um, sometimes when you have a marital dispute or a family dispute, um, so if you're mad at your wife, uh, and your wife is someone who always wants you to eat healthy and prevents you from eating bad food or doesn't want you to smoke, the first thing you do is actually to go out and start smoking or to indulge in the things that your wife prevents you from indulging in. So if your wife didn't like you smoking, when you're angry at her and you have a fight, you may actually go smoke. And it's sort of like to piss off your wife or uh, to say, I'm not going to wear your shackles um, if I am angry at you. Uh, a child who is rebellious is going to do the same thing, meaning uh, just to spite you, he will do something that you don't want, uh, even though it's bad for him. 
because your ego prevents submission. When your ego is angry, you will not accept the shackles uh, of, of life and compromise that you would normally accept if you were uh, uh, um, in having good relations with someone. Meaning, eating healthy things is for your own good. But if you see yourself as having to do it because your wife is keeping an eye on you, uh, then when you're angry at your wife, you will refuse to wear these shackles, even though it is for your own personal benefit. The next thing I will comment on is about the nature of justice versus freedom. So I talked about this in my last talk about justice, but that basically uh, uh, democracy was incompatible uh, with justice because justice was incompatible with freedom. Justice, as Socrates defined it, was each person doing what is their own, not taking anything that doesn't belong to them, uh, and not meddling in the things of anything else. And so a just society would take away freedom of speech in the sense that you could not have anyone, anyone kind of saying whatever they wanted. Uh, so you could not have people giving vaccine misinformation or COVID misinformation in a just society. Because in a just society, people were not allowed to be meddling in things that were not their own. And so understand that part of what is going on is the nature of democracy and the nature of freedom. Unless you are willing to accept taking away freedom of speech from everybody, uh, you will not, this sort of thing will, is naturally going to happen in a free democracy. The last thing I will mention is about dealing with anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers. And the idea is, uh, in, the, you know, in parts of the pandemic, there are places where uh, um, if you wear a mask in public, they were people who were anti-maskers were going up to them and saying, why are you being a sheep? Why are you wearing a mask? And the idea was to learn a way to find a, to find a way in which you would not get angry with these people, uh, because as I said in one of the other talks, your anger was a source of your suffering. And so the idea is, how do you deal with these sort of things without becoming angry? And basically there's, the Stoics had an idea and, and Socrates, they probably got it from Socrates, but the idea of Socrates and the crying guard. And so at the end of his life, when he was forced to commit suicide, um, you know, Socrates, there was sort of an event where he was saying goodbye to people. And he sent all the women away because they were all crying. And the idea was he did not want to look at dying as a bad thing. And so he did not want people mourning at the fact that he was about to die. And uh, he sent, you know, he said to a disciple who was sort of sad and mournful that, do I need to send you away as well, uh, along with the other women that have been sent away? Uh, the idea was that if you were showing mournfulness, then uh, um, it was went against what he said about death and dying. Uh, and because these were his philosophy students, he expected something higher from them. And so at the same time, uh, uh, um, I believe it was in Epictetus that he talked about this, but he said that he treated lay people in a different manner. He didn't hold them to the same sort of harsh terms that he held his philosophical disciples. And so there was a there was a guard who was there 
to kind of stand guard while he administered punishment, where he was, where Socrates was to drink the poison and die. And the guard was crying. And so Socrates uh, um, saw him, and he didn't try to scold him or do anything. He said, "How kind of him to shed to shed those tears for me." Uh, when to his own disciples he said, "If you do this, I'm going to send you away." And this was sort of the idea. So he didn't. He wasn't harsh on the lay people who could not understand uh, philosophy or, or these kind of things. He said along the lines of, "That which he recommends most, that which he thinks best, he recommends to me also, and for that I excuse him. That which he thinks best, he recommends for me also, and for that I excuse him." So the crying guard thought it best to fear death, and because of that, he showed his tears to Socrates. And even though Socrates did not think that was best, because he was a layperson and did not mean anything bad from it, uh, for that, I excuse him. He what he thinks best, he recommends to me, and for that, I excuse him. So if someone comes up to you and says, "Why are you wearing a mask? Why are you a sheep?" That which he thinks best, he recommends to me also, and for that, I excuse him. Um, so the idea there's an idea in Stoicism that whoever can trigger your anger has the ability to be your master, and that one who achieves an ultimate freedom is free of masters and cannot be angered by someone else. This will conclude my talk. Suggest the reading. I believe the dialogue was Gorgias, Plato. Um, I believe Protagoras is also going to be similar. Uh, another dialogue where these kind of things are discussed. Um, the Plato's the Republic. If you haven't read it yet, and some of the other sources I already recommended in previous talks. If you benefit benefited from my talk, I ask ask that you do one good deed in return. One good deed. Uh, the deed is not bound by size, only by sincerity. Thank you for listening.